Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Norm Wilner, film critic, TIFF programmer, and now magazine staff writer from 2008 up until a few months ago. Welcome to Shortcuts. Thanks. Yeah, officially March 31st, uh, 2022. Just over 14 years. Wow. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, filling in for Jesse Brown, who, like Pee-wee searching for his lost bicycle, is deep in the heart of Texas right now. Though Pee-wee wasn't at a podcast conference. Today on the show, How Late Is Now? The latest print issue of Toronto's 40-year-old weekly is likely to be its last. And the Toronto Star challenged a sweeping and unusual publication ban and won. But why did a judge shield the name of Toronto's Upper Canada College in a lawsuit in the first place? Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Claire Watson, Liam Morrison, Saad Ali, Steve Shorlin, Paul Smith, Braden Gregory, Sabrina Budeman, and Nels. I'm Nels, a video game designer from Vancouver, and I support Canada Land for its dedication to reporting truth and to independence, which is especially important when so much of Canadian media is owned by either oligarch dynasties or American vulture funds. Stay good, Canada Land. Right now, we're recording this at about a quarter to one on Wednesday. And for four years of my life, this was like the most single, most busiest time 
of the week. Oh, God, of course. It was when we would put the paper to bed at Now Magazine. And I wasn't really generally even one of the people in charge of putting the paper to bed. I was just scrambling for last-minute copy stuff on my articles. But it was an intense thing week after week. And it's fun. I mean, I love publishing online. There are a lot of reasons I kind of prefer that and the fluid deadlines with that. But there is something weirdly flattering about having someone in some factory shoot ink onto paper that forms the curves that make up the letters that make up the words in your sentences. That's kind of amazing. So I was there from 2013 to 2017. And Norm, you were there for about an additional five years on either end of that. I guess, yeah. I joined in February 2008 and left in, uh, well, technically the end of March 2022, although I really was done by the end of February. The first issue on which you appeared on the masthead, Norm, had 114 staff on it. My first issue in the masthead, five years later in 2013, had 92 staff on it. Sounds about right. My last issue, four years after that in 2017, had 63 people on it. And your last issue from this past spring, there were 18. By this month's issue, which is the last one, that 18 was cut in half to nine. And from what we know, at least some, if not all, were no longer being paid or more specifically, were still owed months of back pay and have been working without a regular paycheck since the winter. To my knowledge, no one has been paid. It's possible sales is getting commissioned, but I don't believe that's the case right now. Last week, acting editor Radian Simon Play tweeted, this is it. This is the final masthead. This is the small team owed 21 weeks of salary, who put together a spectacular issue dropping tomorrow night. I am so incredibly grateful to them all, and also to the people who gifted us their contributions to this issue. He later clarified that it will continue online at least for a little bit, because TIFF is still coming up. This was the TIFF preview issue, and the very first issue of now in 1981 was also a TIFF preview issue. So, Norm, I guess it's a big question, but what was it like being at the paper over the course of 14 years and how it looked very different at very different times from the inside and on the outside? I guess I need to roll back by explaining how I got there. Mm-hmm, sure. um, I was a freelance journalist, entertainment journalist and critic, mostly working for the Toronto Star, Metro, and then GTA Today, then Metro Today, then Metro after Toy Star absorbed all of that. I was the film critic for them for a few years. And then John Harkness died mm-hmm. very suddenly of, of a massive cardiac arrest in December 2007. Mm-hmm. He was now his film writer since the beginning or almost the very beginning. He was a friend. We lived not far from each other. And he uh, he took me to show me his new apartment because he wanted me to consult on the home video system, which now in like a 2007 yeah. rig would have been totally different. And it's adorable to think about it. And then shoveled his walk the next day. And just that was it. You actually can die from shoveling snow in Toronto. It was realized he died when he didn't file. He missed the deadline, yeah, which he had never done. And it was the same thing with Stephen Davey, the food writer. That's right. Seven years later, who also, when he didn't file someone checked on him. Well, that's us, right? I mean, that's that's all weekly journalists, right? We yeah. imagine ourselves as these secret mavericks, and what it really means is we don't have any friends, and when we die, nobody notices. It's horrible. <sighs> so Michael Hollett reached out. like He basically just tapped me on the shoulder yeah. at the end of the memorial and said we should talk. And then Michael, the publisher, hired you. What was it like when you first walked into the offices? It was... Basically, if you grew up watching WKRP in Cincinnati, that's exactly what it looked like. It was a big, shabby building filled with people who were very, very serious about the work they were doing, but also eccentric weirdos. 
I was always on the same floor. There were whole swaths of the building that I, like circulation and, and layout, I was never part of that. I was aware of it. There was the buzz. There was the feeling of it. If you came in on a Tuesday, you had to be ready to get out of the way very quickly because someone was going to come screaming past you with something. And it was great. I mean, desktop publishing was already a thing. Mm -hmm. But we were very much old school. There are no consultants. There are no managers. There was just journalists, paste up, circulation, ad sales, the bones of the structure that you need to put out a newspaper every week. What would it be like to pick up a copy of now in the best days? What was its voice? What was its value? I think it's going to sound self-mythologizing, but I think you could find honesty. I think you could mm -hmm. generally find a perspective, you know, very left, very power to the people, very union-y. You could find people telling the story of the city culturally and politically the best way they knew how. And I was really intimidated by that. And then I just realized they wanted my voice. They just wanted me to be honest. And yeah. that's what we tried to do. And there's a mock issue that shows up in Scott Pilgrim versus the world mm -hmm. that we were all incredibly proud of because that is the most Toronto movie, even though it was made by an Englishman, that is the most Toronto movie in existence. And it was just, yeah, of course we're part of that because we, we would have been offended not to be, but also... Why wouldn't you mm. include this thing? And it, we became a cultural artifact, right, in yeah. a way. Like, I mean, a guide to leftist politics, which otherwise wasn't really in print. I mean, the star is, despite its posturing, as it says, it's always been a centrist, capital yeah. liberal paper. There'd be like a glancing acknowledgement here and there of the yeah. stuff that we were talking about. Now Magazine's about. very much an NDP paper oh, yeah. reporting on the police. Uh, not that the star didn't, but like there's a lot of stuff it did over the years. It's really amazing to think that before the internet or before widespread adoption of the internet, there weren't a lot of places to read opinions that were like outside the mainstream on the news and covering. And frankly, before you know, newspapers, before mainstream media started noticing and covering all manner of art. I mean, it was in, in across every medium. I mean, places to write about independent films, independent music, independent art shows, independent comics. I mean, it would publish, obviously, Dan Savage for years, as indicated from The Strangers. Had, uh, I think one of, we, had, uh, we had Life in Life Hell, in Hell for, Matt for Groening's comic, which is, I think that was one of the first things that attracted me to it in high school. Yeah, I Matt Groening, Linda J. Berry. Like, the comics were genuinely great. Yeah. That's, that's probably what got me into it as well, that yeah. and the theater listings. I know for me, it started, to, like, even, you know, I was only there for a fraction of the time. It started to... I mean, I had a fucking great time, at least for a couple of years. Yeah, but, everybody but does. When I first approached about leaving and coming to Candleland, it was a really, really tough decision. But one factor in that was thinking about the psychological effect of being at a place that was only going in one direction, a place that was shrinking, versus a place that was or would be probably growing. Even if the effect of it was the same at the time, like one example I used is... We had, you know, there were crappy printers that didn't work at Candleland and at Now Magazine. But at Now Magazine, we used to have a really great printer that worked fa fabulously, and we'll probably never have that again. At Candleland, we don't have, we didn't have a good printer, but maybe one day we will have a good one. Right. It's hope versus decay. There is a part of me that wants to point a finger very clearly, and it's not fair, because that's just the experience that I had personally, and I know what my buttons are, and... They were pushed a lot in certain directions by certain people, but that isn't representative of the entire experience that everyone had. Like, I just had a shitty time because I couldn't do the thing that someone wanted me to do. And the thing is, the thing that someone wanted me to do was not what I was hired to do. And I think we all had that experience because now, over the years, went from being an arts and politics weekly with a clear point of view and a clear vision mm -hmm. to a desperate flailing 
Can a ship flail when it's on fire, or do the people on the ship flail? People on the ship would flail. The ship would probably start to tip a bit. Yeah, and but then we tip didn't. Over. We didn't tip. We just kept just we, sailing slowly on yeah. fire. Imagine a ship on fire that can't be extinguished, that no one knows how to get off of. And then gradually you realize you're sitting on a chair that's on fire and your desk is on fire and your computer is on fire and you still have to finish the thing you're working on because you have believed, you have been conditioned to believe mm -hmm. that you are the only person keeping this thing alive. So this is a chart of the size of the actual paper. It's the, the page count of the last Now magazine before Labor Day in each year since 2008 when you started. Oh, cool. Could you just describe what you, what, what you see? Oh, it looks like or? climate change. <laughs> Oh. In reverse. It looks like melting ice caps. Yeah, it's a series of peaks that go progressively lower. So it started around 124, 128 pages, 2008, 2009. That was a heft. That dip, was great. Dipped down to 96 around the time I started. It was about 56 pages in my last year there. Last year, it was down to 16 pages. This looks like the body mass of a cancer patient. <laughs> like to put it yeah. absolutely brutally, that's what that looks like. It looks like someone who's dying from the start and just doesn't figure it out until couple of months before the end. I mean, the reality is digital killed ad sales, right? Mm. Like just straight up murdered them. And ad sales are what pay for a newspaper. And if mm. you are going to print a newspaper and you don't have any ads, you got less stuff. And when you don't have mm. enough ads, you have fewer pages. And then gradually somebody notices and then everyone stops buying. But mm. this had been going on a, a lot earlier just because all of print has been suffering mm -hmm. from this. Really, once Cineplex realized they had their own website, all the <laughs> distributors realized they didn't need newspapers for ads, and that just murdered entertainment sections. Yeah, I mean, I, think, I don't think most people realize that for years, entertainment sections and all print media were basically supported by the, the, the film chains, Cineplex, Odeon, and Famous Players for a long time, in the case of Toronto, but probably different everywhere, buying not full page, but maybe full page oh, or large Fridays, ads. Yeah. Full page ads for the new movie. Run their movie listings. They would pay for the movie listings, and that would keep things afloat. And nowadays, to the extent that there are still entertainment sections in Toronto newspapers, I don't know, Mervish pretty much single-handedly keeps that afloat, and I guess Stratford in the summer. Well, and think about concert listings, right? Now used to have a two-page spread that was the concert promotion mm -hmm. of, you know, the five or six venues mm. are just telling you who was going to play there for the next six months. And that was massive. That was the whole music section funded. And it's parasitic. I, you know, I have no illusions. But as long as you can keep editorial content independent, it's a great business model. It was a great business model. I don't think we'll ever see its like again. And if going through the archives, I, even when I was there going through the old archives, it was just struck me as like, what an incredible chronicle of the city in the pre-internet era. Yep. And how it almost in its own way was kind of like before the internet or before the widespread adoption of the internet, that's kind of what these things were, right? It was the places where just not the mainstream voice, but it was places where conversations and discourse happened and things sort of like the, the internet itself, just sort of the background noise to the main thing, the, yeah. with the conversation happening off to the side, the, the commentary, the meta stuff. Well, Jack Layton alone, right? Like you look at the way Jack Layton was covered in now, and you have the warp and woof of his entire career. And he doesn't start appearing in mainstream papers mm -hmm. at the same time, or at least not at length. He's maybe mentioned as having been. You'll see him in a photograph. He's present at some stuff. Mm -hmm. But he was talking to now. We lived across the road from each other mm -hmm. for a while uh, once I moved into Kensington. And, and we would constantly just sort of nod. And he knew who I was, and I knew who he was. And it was because of now. Now legitimized me in a way that writing for 20 years for the star and its publications didn't. And to take that back to what you were saying about 
now as a guidebook to the city's heart, mm-hmm. culturally and politically, it was an honor to be part of that. I never thought I'd be able to write for them just because I thought I was too mainstream. And then it turns out I'm pretty malleable. But uh, but it was a pleasure to be part of that and to be like slowly, like I've always seen myself as like a, an interloper somehow. Imposter syndrome is, hmm. you know, when you're succeeding to the best critics in the city, it weighs pretty heavily on you. And I got in my own head a lot, but also in the second week I was there, I got to write about an Edward Yang retrospective, which never would have been possible in either The Star or or Metro or anything. Like, cause they weren't interested in a tiny little dead Taiwanese director who was getting celebrated by Cinematech, but he's one of the greatest filmmakers who ever lived. And I got to just blow 800 words on that and, and get people to go and see those films. And by the end, just to, to get us back to mm. where we were supposed to be, uh, I was writing you know, 600-word listicles a day for the website about what, you know, what movies in Netflix do people wear hats in. And it was just... Really? Well, not the hats okay. thing, but basically the word Netflix was great for our SEO. So by the end of it, it was just like, what is on Netflix that can be written about? And that's all you get to do. And it was just, if I wanted to do any actual reviewing work, mm-hmm. I had to do that on my own time. Uh, And it was the pandemic, so it didn't really matter. No one was going anywhere. And so I would watch these Netflix series. And then I was working 14, 16-hour days by the end of it. And it's because, well, because during the day I was just writing this bullshit and had to be at my desk because of Slack. Because if I wasn't, then clearly I didn't deserve, you know, the the meager piece of what I used to make that I was being paid. And, you know, the money got slashed and the hours got slashed. And the new management, the new ownership, they really just wanted the promotional value of Now Magazine, which was, when they bought it, still a pretty relevant brand mm-hmm. as much as we can talk about brands at all. Yeah. And then they wanted to use it to back end their cannabis company and that didn't take. Mm. So then they quickly lost interest. They were just leaving all the decisions to the consultant who was hired before the sale to turn things around and save us through. His pitch was that he was going to save us through blockchain. He's one of those guys who when he meets you, he shakes your hand and won't let go and stares you right in the eye. It's a power move. And I saw in that moment I should have quit. I should have started my exit package because I knew, I knew we were done. And I stayed because, like everyone else, I thought I could save the paper. I thought I could be the person who turns us back around. And then you realize all of those cliches are true. Your job is not your family. Your office is not your home. You think you owe it more than it owes you. And all it owes you is a paycheck. And all you owe it are the hours worked. And that was the hardest thing when I turned around and realized in 2021 that the only reason we were still alive was because of a pandemic funding that came through. The paper would have shuttered months yeah. earlier, even even years earlier, maybe if we hadn't had those supports. We were being sold a bill of goods over and over and over again about how this next thing was going to save us. And whatever the new tech term was, it was NFTs for a while. They were going to save now. And it's like, how the hell is that possible? And it wasn't, and none of it was. And we hung on, and we hung on, and by the end of it, I made less in 2021 than I made in 2008. They cut our salary. We had agreed in 2019 to take, Mm -hmm. um, there was a workshare program offered Mm -hmm. and supported by EI because that was going to get us to a sale. That would keep the paper alive to get us to a sale. And we all agreed to do that. And then Alice sold the company, and they just decided they were going to keep the salary cut. 
So we were all working at 85% of our salary. I assume maybe somebody else got negotiated with commission, but we were all working for less before the pandemic hit. And we just assumed, well, it's a short-term thing. It'll turn around. The pandemic hit. None of us saw any of the supports, although I'm sure they'd claim that the support was the payments that they made to us. But again, 85% of what we were supposed to be paid. The union was powerless because it was a national crisis. I mean, obviously, it was the worst time for this to happen, but it also kept the paper going. The thing is that there is still objective value in it, not just the sentimental value. No, we like did good I, work. it's thanks to your review that turned me on to only murders in the building, and the fact that like even as they're not being weren't being paid this summer, I could still click on and see reviews of fringe festival shows. And it's that same dedication that the thing that made now great is now the thing that is killing the employees, right? Not killing them, but destroying, crushing their souls. Yeah. By the time I left, we were all just miserable. It was everyone realizing at a different pace that this was over. And they kept saying, you know, there'll be a sale. Everything's going to be fine. We'll turn it around. That never happened. Why would you buy a company that's this deep in debt and that has had all the value squozing out of it like a, like a lime by a bartender who's run out of limes and is trying to get the juice out of this last one? Yeah, so the only alt-weekly that is still in print in Canada, so far as I can tell, and the definitions of alt-weekly, different people have might vary, and there probably is some community paper somewhere that considers itself such, and I apologize for ignoring that. Uh, The Georgia Strait, which is also by far the oldest, starting in 1967, has been in print for 55 years, and it's still going in Vancouver, despite uh, now having been under the same ownership as Now Magazine for two years. And Now Magazine, the second oldest, at 41 years. But the average lifespan of an alt-weekly in Canada... From the 18, I was able to figure look at it. It's been about 20 years. And almost none of them continued online after they ended their print edition. No, when they shudder, they shudder. That's how it's supposed to work. You die, you don't live on. But now, of course, digital has become such a a buzzy sales term that, of course, we, we were weekly and then suddenly we were a daily. The idea is to have something new up every day. And we were, like, I was responsible for, I think by the end it was, you know, you have to post two things a day no matter what they are. Oh, my God. And some of them were things that I'd reviewed that were in the paper, so they rolled on Mm -hmm. and they counted. But, you know, you're in a metric like that. You don't have time to think. You don't have time to breathe. And you don't have time to write. You're just responding, reactive, like the lizard brain takes over. I I mean, I've I've looked up a couple of things I wrote uh, in December, January of this last winter, just I've had to check stuff because it's coming out on VOD and I'm comparing my old reviews and things and I don't remember writing them. Uh, I remember seeing the movie, kind of, but I don't remember any of the work I did. I just sat at a desk and at my (laughs) dining room table with my laptop and tried my best to keep the lights on. You have a whole newsletter devoted to physical media called Shiny Things. Do you think there's any chance that print media or print publications could return as kind of like a collector's item type thing the way that vinyl has or... Even Blu-ray discs apparently are? I mean, not as we know them or knew them, but, you know, like... like the, the Village Voice being a quarterly now is like, that's weird. I mean, it's kind of amazing that it's happening at all. Yeah. Like, do you think now would come back for, like, TIFF every year or The Fringe or... No. I don't think so. I think as long as it's owned by a corporation that is interested in short-term reward, like, there's no long-term strategy, right? There's just no point in planning for something a year from now. And And honestly, who would they get to write for them other than people who will work for free, because you just have to assume going in at this point that you won't be paid. I'm a film critic at heart, and I'm naturally inclined to metaphor and, and uh, mm-hmm. overstatement, but I don't, I don't hold out any hope for the brand, which at, at a point I probably would have jumped on a hand grenade to protect. 
because we all valued it. And like I said, this is what it's like to leave a cult and just turn around and realize, wow. oh, yeah, you know what? You don't have to wear the special shoes and you don't have to tithe your salary uh, with the expectation that someday you'll be made whole. And you don't have to sacrifice hours, hours, days, months during a pandemic, which has so many of its other stresses that are external, you don't have to go see a movie because you have to go see the movie and worry about whether you're going to catch the disease that's killing people all around you. It's, it's a profoundly unhealthy way to live. Norm, on this show, we have a section called Duly Noted in which we note things duly. What would you like to note, Duly? I would like to note that I am delighted to no longer be a film critic in the public sphere because of what's been going on this week with the dispute between Amanda Stenberg, who co-stars in Bodies, 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 and a New York Times film reviewer named Lena Wilson, who was sent an, a DM from Stenberg about Wilson's review of the film, where she referred to it as a 95-minute advertisement for cleavage. Uh, Stenberg responded something along the lines of, you know, maybe if you hadn't been looking at my chest, you would have enjoyed the movie. And... It blew up because everything does. Uh, Wilson made the message public, and uh, so it's become a social media beef as well. And then Wilson also delivered a, a video. I don't want anything else to come of this. I am devastated to have received this message in the first place. I was a genuine, huge fan of hers. But I'm posting it because I don't want this person who has more social power than me to think that it's fucking okay to do something like this. And that's all. First of all, this episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars and I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. As every other working critic said when this happened, never do that. 
people have crabbed at me about my reviews over the years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had you know, I've had people send me angry faxes because I suggested the Lord of the Rings movie should be two instead of three. That was that was the golden age. Now, social media has made it much more mm-hmm. personal, much more cruel, yeah. much more angry. And you know, honestly, as a middle aged white man, uh, yeah, I, but, I am not getting anywhere near the real this, venom that younger women are, especially yeah, in course. people of color. So to see this happen, and for Wilson to apparently decide that she could make it about her and and turns out that she's the daughter of a New York Times writer and and this reminds me of like early gawker stuff. Yeah, it's small and pissy in every direction. Nobody wins, like nobody comes off looking well. When I've been on the receiving end of of these communications, I have never made them public because it's just why would you even do that? It's just if you if you say something that an artist takes personally, they have every right to respond. As long as it's not threatening, as long, mm-hmm. you know, as long as it's within the boundaries of good taste, yeah. it's just common courtesy. But that concept of courtesy is gone, and it's saddening to watch this. And now, because this young woman in her twenties has mm-hmm. had an emotional response to this, what she perceives as a homophobic attack from another gay person, mm-hmm. it's all. It has gotten impossibly messy, and none of it should have ever made it to our brains is my larger point. When someone sends you an angry message, you take it to your editor, especially if you work at the New York Times, for God's sake. Duly noted. I just want to duly note something that ran in the Toronto Star this morning. And online, it's actually been edited in the time that we've been sitting here midday Wednesday. I'm actually also going to give a content warning for this uh, about abuse. Uh, Toronto Star has a columnist, Ellie Tesher, who she's written an advice column there for, I think, her 20-year anniversary is next month. She is, according to Wikipedia, about 80, but I haven't found an independent source for that, so with a caveat. So this was a letter that would print ran in today's star. My partner has said he'll he'll never forgive me for my infidelity. He's repeatedly told me that he hates me and has threatened to kill me multiple times. He even pointed a gun towards my head and threatened to shoot. Is this anger warranted because of my cheating? I'd been cheating throughout the entire course of the relationship until I got caught. I've since apologized several times for lying and cheating. However, he continues with murderous behavior towards me. What more can I do to stop his threats besides apologizing? The letter signed, Boyfriend's Murderous Threats. So Ellie correctly advises her to go to the police. That's the first two paragraphs is, you know, go to the police. These are extreme responses. You need to get advice from police. This is, that's the most important thing. But then... It continues with three additional paragraphs, which uh, are no longer online, which she wrote, Meanwhile, your own careless cheating throughout what you called a relationship was deplorable and led to this frightening situation. Wherever you got the idea that you could play loose and careless with a relationship partner's pride and emotions, recognize the danger in which you've placed yourself. Stay into this man's radar and distance from those people with whom you cheated. An angry, jealous ex is unlikely to accept an apology. So they oh, cut that out. Uh, it was first pointed out on Twitter by uh, Amanda Connolly of Global. They cut those, those paragraphs immediately on the Star's website and said, this column has been edited, more to come. And now, since I've been sitting here, now has an editor's note. This column has been updated. A previous version inappropriately suggested that the letter writer shared the blame for her abuse. It has been updated to reflect the Star's editorial standards. We regret that the article was published in its original form. If you are a victim of domestic violence or abuse, here's a list of several sources. And they link to a page on the Star's website with um, resources for that. Oof. No. No, 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 no. I mean, I think even Dear Abby used that a few times when I was reading them when I was a little baby child, but uh, it's never right. And uh, yeah, no, ow, ow, ow. And maybe maybe 20 years is too long to be writing an advice column. What is it? You either die a hero or you live long enough to become 
a moral figure. I worry, honestly, I, I, I do worry as I age that I'm going to do something that I don't think is stupid, but is just because we're all like in my head, I'm still kind of 14 years old and figuring everything out as we go. That's the dark secret of growing up. Mm -hmm. I, I constantly worry that I'm going to do something stupid because everybody does stupid things. It's just that people with platforms have a greater responsibility to think twice about whether or not they're going to blame someone for their own. No, that's just, no, no. Duly noted. This next segment also contains mention of sexual assault. So this is something I first noticed on the front page of Tuesday's Toronto Star. Star investigation, school identified in sexual assault lawsuit. Then below, court lifts ban that kept school's name hidden. UCC denies plaintiff's allegations. I really like the way they frame that because they're not going, oh, it was UCC, Upper Canada College, that is the school here. It is court lifts ban that kept school's name hidden. UCC denies plaintiff's allegations, just sort of pushing that out there. So this is an interesting, strange story that's unfolded over the past couple of years, and we're going to look at how this ban came about, how and why the Star fought it, and what it might mean if someday in the near future, institutions like the Star go, well, go the way of Now magazine. And it began in January 2020 when a student or a former student at UCC launched a lawsuit against a couple former classmates, as well as the school itself, as well as some people who work there. This person launched a lawsuit as a young person writing about an alleged sexual assault and how the school allegedly had failed to protect him and then how they treated him afterward. It's very common in, in criminal cases, it's mandatory that the names of young people involved in alleged crimes and certainly the names of alleged victims of sexual assault are kept private, as would be any information that might reasonably identify them. Of course. There's some nuances there, but that's generally how it goes. It's unusual for an institution for being sued in a civil suit to not have their name revealed. And it's even more unusual for the entire file to be sealed overall. Almost always these things are published, but with, with obviously the names removed as well as any sort of identifying details just redacted or covered up. In this case, the lawsuit became known as a student versus XYZ school. Usually what happens is that when there is an, a request for a publication ban, uh, for a, a discretionary ban, someone, a lawyer in a civil case usually wants some information kept from the public and from the media scrutiny, there's an email list. They have to fill out a form and then an email goes out via this MailChimp list that the court maintains. And that list basically you know, gives you some really bare details of the case and what's being requested. And this list goes to media. And it's often really interesting just for, you know, sort of tipping you off for things that might be going on in the courts that you might not have noticed. Someone at the Star was smart enough to have a lawyer look into that and go and basically try to figure out, wait, what's going on here? Why is the school not being named? Because the reason these, this email, these emails are sent to the media is so they can have an opportunity to challenge them. They challenge these orders if you think it's in the public interest to do so. So there's at least an opportunity before the whole thing becomes secret to actually go in and you know try to change that. So the star went, they challenged it, and they lost at the Superior Court, which is much as to say the judge chose to uphold that original order. Then they appealed to the Court of Appeal. And it's one of those cases where you kind of get the sense that even the judges on the Court of Appeal were just shaking their heads and wondering what the original judge had been thinking. Because basically, as they made clear in the decision, no one had ever really asked for a whole order sealing the entire file. What is your initial gut reaction when you read the story? 
I guess my first reaction was, huh, did the judge go to UCC? Like, why would, why would, you, <laughs> yeah. why would you issue that order unless it was requested? So do we know if it was requested? The short version is that it's complicated. So the question of did the judge go to UCC, that's thankfully a little easier to answer. I was wondering that too. No, he went to Brockville Collegiate Institute. But this is what I've been trying to sort of parse. The lawsuit was against these former students as well as the school and some people who work for the school. And uh, the school did not file a confidentiality motion, but they did file in support of the confidentiality motion by the young defendants. They didn't move their own, but they did swear, like there was an administrator there, did swear multiple affidavits in support of it and trying to sort of argue that it would at least tend to identify the defendants if you were to have the name of the school, that people could figure it all out, put it all together. There is, I think, a question one could reasonably wonder whether there was self-interest there. I mean, in the way they describe it, they're just looking out for the young defendants. They don't want them to be identified. Sure. You could reasonably ask or wonder, well... Do they also realize it might be in their interest to not have this get out more broadly? I mean, what they did say, the school administrator swore that at least as of March 2021, there was no known media coverage and there were no rumors or communications at the school about the action. Further, they swore that she believed the litigation and the sexual assault incident allegations involving the students were not generally known in the school community. She added that she believed it would be harmful to all the student body should this litigation and particularly the allegations about the sexual assault incident receive any media attention, publicity, or otherwise become widely known in the school community. That's as summarized in the Court of Appeal decision. Oh, like the school community didn't already know. The school community, as they, they at least they swore an affidavit, did not already know. And so there was definitely concern about that getting out. I mean, conversely, there's also a concern of like maybe it's in the interest of a school community to know certain things, certainly know how the school did or did not respond to this. And I, even though I'm not being specific about the allegations, I mean, they, they deny the allegations that they didn't respond appropriately. Well, if they responded appropriately, surely they'd want people to know that in the course of this case. It just, it, you can't, the problem is you cannot help but mm -hmm. be cynical about mm -hmm. this, about their motivations, because that's just the world we live in now. Like, these are the quarters of power acting to protect themselves and reflexively. So even if it wasn't on the table, or rather, if it was just on the table, of course they would take it, because if it's an option offered to you to fight a little harder to make this go away, and maybe it never gets out, and maybe everybody's protected, and maybe we can settle this behind, you know... Right? Like, let's exactly. settle this like gentlemen, let that old term mm -hmm. where, eh, you don't need the law. But someone was assaulted to the point where they feel they need retribution and justice. Yeah, it's it's the Streisand effect. Now we're all talking about it. Whereas it might have just been a case of, mm -hmm. you know, school violence being the issue. Now it's which school the violence happened at that everyone's talking about. So the star, yeah, took this to the court of appeal where they were successful. I mean, there's a lot of information that can't be shared. We can't, they, you know, can't know what years this took place, what grades the students were in at the time, the alleged incidents. But we can say Upper Canada College because institutions, especially ones that are defendants in actions, aren't typically afforded protections as though they themselves were victims of sexual assault. Yeah. I mean, as a former and maybe still current journalist, I'm not really sure how I see myself anymore. I'm always going to argue for sunlight and the truth and laying the facts out whenever possible and obviously, yeah, protect the identity of the victims. And if that extends to protecting the identity of the assailants, then that's what you have to do because it's just, again, like it's good manners to follow the directives of the law, but you don't have to protect the institution. And in fact, perhaps more people should know that this sort of thing happens there mm. where presumably there would be the nothing but the finest standards applied, right? Like mm -hmm. if they're not holding up the best possible uh, protections or 
and they they claim they are in this mm-hmm. in this yes. action. They're, they're, yeah. They're so yeah. had they said that right up the top, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be talking about them anymore. We wouldn't be talking about the venue. Certainly, we would be talking about the assault and the and the suffering and, and the bullying, mm-hmm. which culturally is the story. Except now that it's also, why did Upper Canada College feel it was necessary to sweep some part of this mm-hmm. under the rug? Yeah. And how much further would they have swept it had they not been stopped by this? Like, Star gets action. Yeah, I mean, what's curious about this, and this is the part I was trying to parse, is like, how actively were they trying to keep their name out of it? And it definitely seems as though they were very happy to, like, swear these affidavits in support of this confidentiality motion to keep their name out of it until the Star began to challenge it. They did support the young defendant's position, but it sounds like they didn't do anything more than just say, we agree. Like, they could have submitted things. They could have written a factum, which is, like, basically the submission. They didn't do that. They were more like, yeah, we'll we'll do what they're doing. And It I mean, sounds this, like they were perfectly willing to accept the courtesy when it was offered. Yes. To me, it is inconceivable that in Canada now, any new outlet could start up or that any current outlet that hasn't already been at the size could grow to a size where they could regularly litigate things like this. I cannot remember the last time now had that kind of resources. And and that's, I mean, we were a tiny shop always, even when we had a hundred odd people, but that's, yeah, that's the ideal, right? And how many places are left even now that would bother spending that kind of money? The Star, I'm happy to find out that they're still doing that. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, the Star, the Globe, CTV, CBC are, tend to be the most active but, I mean, I know Jesse often talks about how, you know, the media that's failing, you know, can go ahead and fail and be replaced by lots of new things. And I do think that there is definitely truth to that, that new things will and do and can grow in that space and can do a good job of covering a lot of things. But maybe I'm just – it's just about the fact that I'm not – my imagination isn't great, but it's hard for me to imagine in Canada any – outlet going to a point where they have the heft to hire lawyers to litigate things on a regular basis. There's this feeling that once we do lose these longstanding, these legacy institutions, who would do this work? Because there's so much legal work that journalists do to try to uncover things that should never have been secret in the first place. And the Canadian courts are really terrible, like Canadian society generally, about keeping things secret that don't need to be and aren't supposed to be secret. What happens when we no longer have that? And the institutions and corporations that are using these things mm-hmm. to their advantage have endless funding. And exactly. They can just wait us out or them, whoever the next mm-hmm. wave of journalists are. And yeah, it's it, Canada is all about scale, right? Like if you're mm-hmm. big, you stay big. If you're small, you're allowed to grow to a certain level and then you're either purchased or absorbed or quietly disappeared. I remember when I reviewed Going Clear, the documentary that HBO produced about Scientology, Mm. that we went through that with a fine-tooth comb to make sure I hadn't said anything that might open us up Mm. to legal action. I was just reporting the the facts that are rendered in the, presented in the film, which are, have already been legally vetted because if it's on HBO, they've already, like Time Warner has put it through the ringer. Uh, And in the end, it was decided that that would be fine. And we were just sort of waiting for some, you know, a slap suit to come our way where Mm. um, the, the church would decide that it had taken offense and therefore we were defaming them. But we weren't and we didn't and nothing happened. But that was probably the only time we came really close to it. But now if you don't have lawyers uh, on retainer, if you can't afford Mm -hmm. them, you might decide not to review the film at all. I I always hate implying that 
backroom dealings are, are behind all of this and that there is a shady cabal of business people who just make decisions that affect us all. But that kind of is the reality in this country and most of the world at this point. And um, telecoms, uh, they don't act with one mind, but they all act towards preservation and institutions, banks, schools, universities, places that have been the centers of power Mm. have every expectation that they're going to remain the centers of power. And when mm -hmm. that's challenged, they get litigious. Uh, mm -hmm. And they can outlast any small journalistic endeavor. Yeah. And so the star, yeah, it's one of maybe half a dozen places in institutions in this country that could stand and fight. And you just have to wonder how much longer, as you say, like they're going to mm. be willing to do that. And then how much longer they'll have the resources to. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thanks for joining me, Norm. It was a pleasure. I'm sorry we talked about literally everything under the sun. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. You can find me on Twitter at Goldsby or email me at Jonathan at CanadaLand.com. I'm not as good at getting back to emails as I'd like to be, but I will definitely read it. Uh, where can people find you, Norm? For the next three weeks, I will be somewhere in the Tiff Bell Lightbox. Uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner on uh, Instagram at norm.wilner, which is mostly just pictures of the dog and food. And you can find my uh, podcast, Someone Else's Movie, wherever you find podcasts or online at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast on Twitter. And uh, of course, there's Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, streaming stuff and whatever I feel like writing about because I get to do that again now for the first time in a long time. That's at shiny-things.ghost.io. This episode is produced by Jordan Cornish. Thanks so much, Jordan. With additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Outsorn. This is his last week here. Uh, thank you so much for everything, Kieran. Um, we'll miss you. Uh, theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Thanks for supporting Canada Land. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.